people think personalized learning sometimes there's this misconception of it's kid on machine. Of the nine different modalities we have, two of them involve computers, the rest don't. But we're, we're really using technology for is behind the scenes, constantly grouping and regrouping students who have a common need. So whether it's small group instruction or even large group instruction, um, if I'm teaching 17 kids area of a triangle tomorrow at 11 a.m., I know that those 17 kids have all mastered all of the precursor skills to learn area of a triangle, and none of them already know it. So um, I'm already going to be more effective in that moment as a teacher than I would be in a traditional classroom when the, the variability of student needs would be all over the map. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and today Tom talks with Joel Rose, CEO and co-founder of the nonprofit New Classrooms. You know, Megan, uh, today we hear a lot of people talk about technology integration. That's not what we talked about in this podcast. Uh, Joel, instead of trying to integrate technology into schools, used technology to completely rethink uh, how math is learned and taught. So this is about 10 years ago. Megan, if we travel in the Wayback Machine, you were teaching in L.A. back in 2006. I was, and uh, I was teaching math. So. Let's time travel back to 2006. What did it look like? You know, especially if we think about the technology component, um, I, it looked pretty traditional. I mean, I like to think that there was some fun things that were happening, but when it comes to technology, it was barely anything. We had a laptop cart. Um, and I remember somebody from the university, a local university, um, coming to sort of test out. I mean, I was always willing to have people come in and, and try things out. So it was almost like they were testing out this, this math activity set um, that was supposed to kind of add this element of personalization. Uh, it was in no way, shape, or form the way that we think about it now. Um, but I remember people were excited. They got to play on the computers, so they were excited. But it was a, it was a logistical nightmare. Um, everything about it was clunky. I was not able to get any information out of that, so I didn't necessarily know what the kids were doing. Um, I didn't know how it connected to what we were doing in class. Um, and so it really turned into just kind of a, a way to use time. Um, and it was engaging, but I'm not sure it really dramatically changed my practice or the kids' learning. The 2006 was really before adaptive learning. It was a time when there was almost no venture capital money spent. None of the national education foundations had an innovation agenda. Uh, the innovative work that was happening was some uh, new school development, but it was very traditional structures. And so that context is important to remember uh, in this uh, great chat that we had with Joel Rose today. Awesome. And here's Tom and Joel. Joel Rose, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Tom. Joel, we met when you were uh, the chief HR officer for New York City. Uh, you were working for the famous Joel Klein. Um, how did you get involved in a math pilot program uh, from the chief HR role? Well, uh, one of the things I did, Tom, is um, uh, I took the HR team uh, in New York to go visit the HR departments at IBM and the GE to see no kidding. Uh, how I, they're managing people. I didn't know that. That's I did. That's interesting. 
and and we were reflecting on those meetings, and we had always talked about the four R's, which were recruit, retain, remediate, and in some cases remove. And those organizations talked about five R's, and the fifth R they talked about was role, R O L E, role. Yeah. Are you designing jobs that are doable for people? And when we were reflecting on the doability of the job of the teacher, um, both based on what the data said and what our own experiences were as teachers, we came to believe that um, it was uh, a pretty undoable job. And we had to think differently about reimagining the entire classroom in order to make the job of the teacher much more doable. Interesting. What year was that? That would have been when you started doing those visits. Was it two thousand seven, eight? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Interesting. And um, I, I think I had just left the Gates Foundation, and it is fair to say we have to remember <laughs> this is ten years ago. There is zero venture capital being spent in education. No national foundation has an innovation agenda. And so the questions that you're raising around a fundamentally different role using new tools in new kinds of schools was not a fresh conversation uh, in America. Uh, unfortunately not. There were uh, many a foundation that gave, gave, gave us a nice pat on the head and said good luck uh, because this was not what they were focused on. All right, so f fast forward, um, how do we get to the wonderful um, pilot strategy that you guys developed uh, for the uh, 2000, I think it was 2009 summer school, School of One? Uh, so um, uh, Joel got excited about the idea. I wrote it up in a, in a big proposal document. I called it School of One. Uh, we raised a little bit of money from Cisco at the time and you know, hired a few people to help us figure it out. And in the summer of 2009, we launched what was then School of One. It was only for 80 kids. They were all in the same grade. They would come from 8.30 in the morning to 12.30 in the afternoon. Um, and the idea was, could we figure out every day what they should do the next day based on how they did the previous day, both personalizing what they're going to learn and, and the ways in which they'd learn. So the kids would leave at 12.30. We'd be there until about 11 o'clock at night uh, trying to figure out what their schedule should be for the next day, staging the room and getting it all ready to go. Uh, the first uh, week or so were an unmitigated disaster. We made every mistake we could have possibly made. Uh, all the things we thought made sense in PowerPoint turns out didn't quite go as we thought they would when, uh, when we were working with real kids and real teachers. Uh, but eventually, in the course of doing that summer program, we started to figure out um, how to enable this type of a multimodal adaptive classroom. Uh, and then when we finished the summer, Joel had come and visited three uh, five times. Uh, and by the end of that calendar year, um, Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of the year. It was the first ever education invention to make Time's best inventions list. So th this was, um, I, I want to underscore that summer school was a real insight because the the pathway that you took was from summer school to after school to in school sort of low stakes um, maybe no stakes low stakes limited stakes uh, so it, in retrospect I think this was uh, 
a brilliant and pioneering way to think about how to incubate and test uh, new ideas in education? Uh, well, it, we really didn't have a choice uh, because we just knew that the stakes were so high in regular school that no one would really want to do this type of piloting. We also, though, felt like what was key to making this successful wasn't just um, an academic program. It was what we call the operational design. So in the month leading up to the summer, um, we focused on certainly the academic side, skill maps, learning progression, content, assessment but also the operational design, things like where kids are gonna put their backpacks and room acoustics and where the substitute teacher one day and how does grading work and all the logistical details that go into the classroom experience. And um, we've iterated and iterated and iterated upon that model you know, ever, ever since then, but that core idea of putting serious thought into the overall design um, has, has sort of been true ever since that initial pilot. So by, um, well, Time Magazine's um, denoting this as one of the most important inventions of the year is certainly a, that was a big deal. Uh, you probably had the sense then um, in, in 2010 that this um, was an idea that was worth running with. And I think you began the, the arduous task of figuring out a, an tangle yourself and the IP from New York public schools and, and create this as a new entity, right? That started in earnest in 2010? Right. Um, a number of our supporters um, shared with us that they thought, and I agreed, that we had to figure out a way to get this out of um, the city of New York for, for two reasons. One, there might be a new mayor one day who would think that this was uh, the last guy's idea and would kill it. Right. Uh, but, but two, more importantly, you know, we're, we're living at a time where because of technology, things can have a much wider impact. There's not Facebook LA and Facebook Chicago, there's Facebook. Uh, and if we can build it once and build it right, um, there are kids all around the world that would benefit from this kind of innovation. It just didn't make sense to to have it housed within you know one uh, one school district. I think I was among the people that uh, talked to you early and being a new venture capitalist, I was encouraging you to spin this out as a for profit. Uh, so why the nonprofit status in the the initial organization? Uh, well, there were a few reasons. W one is um, you know, we had this team that was focused on School of One. We wanted to keep the momentum going, and we didn't think I didn't think we could raise uh, the kind of money we need to raise in order to keep that that team and that momentum intact. The second reason, though, was probably the bigger reason, which was um, I, I just didn't think that we could grow fast enough to get the types of returns that uh, a venture capitalist would expect to see. Uh, in many ways, what what we thought we needed was um, big levels of investment in R and D uh, to figure out the model, and we're going to working working with a market that has notoriously been very slow to adopt. Um, that's not typically a great recipe for for venture money. Usually, it's the reverse that venture money looks for. And so, uh, because we had relationships with nonprofits, we decided to make it a nonprofit. And that I think proved to be insightful. Uh, about this time, we started hearing more about lean startup 
Um, but this, you're arguing um, for what Katzman has called uh, a thick startup, where there is lots of R&D and where you have a long enough runway to do important work. And when that sort of um, work is called for, particularly in education, it does uh, seem to require a, a .org status or a hybrid approach that can take advantage of philanthropic investment to create a long enough runway to do the, the, the careful R&D work to really uh, design and pilot a brand new learning model. I think so. And I think that's you know, particularly true in K-12, just given the nature of, uh, in the U.S., of 15,000, you know, fairly fragmented autonomous school districts and the challenges associated with, with distribution of any new solution. So let's back up and describe that uh, initial uh, innovation. It's, it was, the School of One was really a, a station rotation um, about eight stations, combination of uh, a, a number of, of technology stations plus small group instruction. Um, so add some detail there and, and a little bit on the algorithm that monitored student progress in the background. Sure. So um, the best way to explain what it was then and in many ways what it is today is if you imagine you're a seventh grader and you have reading first period in room 206 and you have PE second period in the gym, third period you have math. And instead of going into room 105, you go into a big open space with lots of different stations. In some stations, kids work with teachers. In some stations, kids work with software. In some stations, kids work on different activities with one another. And above each station, there is a sign. This is LaGuardia Airport. This is the Bronx Zoo. And when you walk in for math, you look up and you see these big TV monitors that look like what you see at the airport. And you see your name and you see which station you're supposed to go to. So you might spend the first 35 minutes working on factoring binomials with Mr. Smith at the Bronx Zoo. Then you might spend the next 35 minutes working on factoring binomials with some software at LaGuardia Airport. And then the last 10 minutes, you take an online assessment in that particular skill, and then you're off to social studies. That's the entire student experience. And then we take the data from that daily exit slip and create a new schedule for you for the next day based on how you did the previous day. And Joel, I, I am sure I have said um, more than 500 times in, in presentations since visiting the first school of one. Um, I, I love the EdTech stations, but my favorite is the small group instruction. And I use a, a picture of it the first day that I visited School of One with you as a, a great picture of the kind of uh, conditions we ought to create for teachers where they can meet with a group of students who have demonstrated readiness for that lesson on that day in that modality. That's when you were talking earlier about changing roles, changing conditions. That's really what you're shooting for, right? Exactly, exactly. So, you know, people think personalized learning sometimes there's this misconception of it's kid on machine. Of the nine different modalities we have, two of them involve computers, the rest don't. But we're, we're really using technology for us behind the scenes, constantly grouping and regrouping students who have a common need. So whether it's small group instruction or even large group instruction, um, if I'm teaching 17 kids area of a triangle tomorrow at 11 a.m., I know that those 17 kids have all mastered all of the precursor skills to learn area of a triangle, and none of them already know it. 
So um, I'm already going to be more effective in that moment as a teacher than I would be in a traditional classroom when the, the variability of student needs would be all over the map. So what do you know about uh, how the model is working today? Yeah. Uh, so uh, that scheduling process, they used to take us 11 hours for about 80 kids. Uh, we are now serving 13,000 kids in 40 schools. Uh, and we have schedules out by about 4.30 local time uh, every day. Uh, we're currently operating in 10 states plus uh, Washington, D.C., uh, we are in district schools, we are in charter schools, we are in independent schools. Uh, the, the sort of last uh, third-party uh, uh, study we commissioned was came from Doug Reddy at Teachers College, um, and that study showed that across the entire network, uh, students uh, made a year and a half's worth of gains uh, in a single year uh, on NWEA, uh, so we were certainly excited about that. Uh, but in many ways, we're sort of just getting started in, in really figuring out how to actually optimize this um, to its fullest potential. You're listening to Tom and Joel Rose talk about inventing a new approach to learning math. For more on innovations in math, check out our recent podcast, Season 2, Episode 6, with Dreambox Learning, where we try to better understand how blended learning can actually be leveraged to cultivate young mathematicians. Now back to Tom and Joel. What grade levels are you serving now? Is it still a middle grade program? Uh, the program uh, students uh, the program starts in fifth grade and goes up through integrated algebra. Uh, this year we launched three high school programs for students that aren't quite through algebra: one in Oklahoma, one in California, and one in Pennsylvania. Uh, we have students all the way up through twelfth grade, but who aren't yet through algebra. Um, the skill map itself, while the kid the lowest grade level we serve is fifth grade. Uh, the skill at the skill map has skills that go down in some cases into the second grade level, uh, to the extent that those skills are precursor skills to fifth grade skills. And what are your uh, plans for expansion? I, let's talk both about uh, how will the model get better. What's the product roadmap look like? And then um, your sense of of how you expand uh, your impact. Sure. Uh, so we really um, spent the last five years, um, what we would say is cracking the operational code, really figuring out, is it even possible to create a replicable way of, of enabling personalized learning in a, in a multimodal adaptive environment? Uh, we've also done a lot of work with social emotional learning and incorporated that into the model um, and feel, feel like we've, we've, we've gotten that to a pretty good place. Um, the next uh, key phase for our work is while we're going to grow modestly over the next few years from 40 schools to roughly about 70 schools, um, we're now going to begin to focus a lot of our energies on cracking the academic code. Uh, so we get literally millions of academic uh, learning, every, every academic uh, points, uh, uh, data points every day, um, sorry, every year. Uh, what we have not yet done is use those data points to actually make the whole system smarter. Uh, to use um, to use some of the patterns uh, that have emerged over the last two years, so that when we're trying to figure out what is the right lesson for Johnny tomorrow, um, what can inform that decision is the thousands of instances of students who were in Johnny's exact situation previously. Uh, so that's a big part of what uh, what our what our next uh, three to five years are going to be focused on. Uh, sticking to math. Yes, we're going to stick with math. 
do you see going up or down in terms of grade level, or is uh, the middle grade the sweet spot for this model? Uh, we can we can see both. Um, um, you know, I think there are a lot of things that will change for an elementary model. Most importantly, most elementary schools are self-contained classrooms. They aren't uh, departmentalized like middle schools are. And we can certainly see going up, particularly to geometry. Uh, so I think both of those are possible. Um, but, our, but our immediate sort of priority is to really focus even more deeply on the, on the content, on the um, precursor relationships embedded in the skill map. Uh, and on the modalities so that we can really optimize the, the scheduling process. Once we feel like we've got uh, math, middle grade math, to a point where uh, if kids experience this, their chances of leaving eighth grade ready for algebra are much, much higher than they are today, um, we'll begin to explore how to use some of the assets we've constructed for other subjects and other grade spans. What do you think you've learned about competency-based education, the idea of kids moving at their own pace? So I think there are you know, a number of terms that make great sense to educators, competency-based, personalized learning, um, some of the social-emotional learning. The, the, the challenge isn't whether these are good ideas. The challenge is how they can be operationalized. How does one teacher with 30 kids in his or her class really operationalize a competency-based approach, much less a school, much less a district, much less a state? Yeah, and so, so our view is what is key to that um, is actually the, the design of a holistic model right. that includes both an academic component and the operational component. And so when you know, we design our models, one of our core tenants is it's got to be competency-based, which it is. Another tenant is our personalized pathways. Another tenant is their constant grouping and regrouping of students. So I would view things like competency-based learning less as ends but more as properties of holistically defined models. Any uh, generalizable lessons about uh, competency, Ed? I mean, that, that may be the, the most important one, that it's a team sport. It, it has to be a holistic design. It's not something an individual teacher can do. But what, what do you think you learned about kids moving at their own pace and when and how learning can and should be collaborative? Any thoughts about that? Well, there's, there's a lot to talk about there that we've learned, and, and we're still learning. I'll, I'll give you a few, um, a, a few things. One is uh, that there is a real tension between, um, and we've talked about this in the past, Tom, between um, models that are focused on meeting kids where they are right. and uh, an assessment architecture that is focused on grade-level standards. Uh, and so when the seventh grader walks in on a fourth-grade level, do you meet that kid where he is and give him fourth grade content or do you give him seventh grade content? Um, and we are just living in a world where the accountability systems will say one thing, but I think what people think what's best for the kids is in many ways something else. And we're still sort of navigating that. The way we handle it um, currently is if you're in seventh grade, we anchor you on a seventh grade skill and then we enable you to fill in any pre-grade gaps that you have in service of that seventh grade skill. And then we go to the next seventh grade skill and we, we do it again. Sometimes that means that because of the time it takes to fill in the gaps that you're not going to be exposed uh, to every seventh grade skill that's going to be on the test. And that can cause uh, some concern among the, the leadership and the staff at the school. But that is what's right 
uh, that is what's right for the kids. What do you think you've learned about uh, different learning pathways or different learning preferences for students? Do some so that, students learn differently than others? No question. No question. Um, I, I'll give you one example. We notice sometimes uh, there are kids who will not want to even consider practicing a new skill um, unless they've been taught that skill from a teacher first and then they have a chance to practice it. Other kids only want the opportunity to see if they can teach themselves that skill first and then they want to meet the teacher to see if they figured it out or what their errors in their way were, was. We have, when I go to schools, I always go to a, a table full of four kids. I'll say, what modality do you think is the best modality for you? I almost always get four different answers. Some wow. kids like collaborative, some kids don't. Some kids like online, some kids don't. Some kids like the teacher, uh, some kids a little bit less. So it just, it really does vary by kid. And is your algorithm getting smart enough to uh, provide a pathway that has more of a, a learning preference for each student? Uh, it is. It, it currently works a little bit like the Pandora Music Service works, where you know we'll get assessment data each day, and then based on that data, we'll be able to look at the experiences kids had that day and kind of give it a thumbs up or thumbs down, so that we can learn more about what works best for that particular student. Uh, what it doesn't do yet, which we're hoping to do in the next phase, is 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 really use um, the historical patterns of kids in similar situations uh, and have that help to inform and ultimately accelerate each student's particular learning progression. I have, um, the last few years, I've, I've really uh, become um, enthusiastic about the combination of personalized and project-based learning. Um, uh, it sounds like you've added some application to your model, some problem-based learning. Is that fair? Absolutely. One of the biggest changes from Teach to One to what was School of One. Um, so one of the components of the academic design uh, is once we have each student's personalized curriculum for the year, um, we pull out from that uh, skill library a related set of skills and concepts that we call their playlist. And they experience that over a two-week period called a round. Uh, there's about 20 to 25 different learning sessions embedded in that round. About 60% of those sessions are more sort of discrete skill and concept building, and about 30%, 30 to 40%, uh, are, are more project-based activities that we call tasks. Uh, those are multi-day experiences that require kids to apply their learning uh, in, in real-life ways. What general observations can you make now about school having um, been at this for six or seven years. Do you has it changed your view of how school should work for young people? I, I mean, I say this both in the role that I have, but as a parent, uh, you know, schools could work so much better if it, if we actually design the experiences in ways that really took advantage of all of the modern tools and research and know-how that we have in the modern world. Um, the, they would they would just be fundamentally different experiences for kids, uh, but we keep locking kids into the same scope and sequence standard curriculum. One teacher, thirty kids, eight hundred square foot room. Most kids find that um, not always inspiring, uh, and we just we can do so much better. Um, it is just a matter of will and 
and and an opportunity and in particular design to create what those experiences could be and Joel that is uh, it's well said particularly if we take seriously uh, the the mindsets um, and the social emotional learning the the uh, social awareness, um, the ability to monitor and manage our own behavior, the ability to collaborate well with others, the ability to apply uh, design thinking to new challenges. And if we, if we really prioritize those outcomes as well as um, basic skills, it would really require us to think very differently about learning environments and experiences Exactly. Exactly. And it, it is not, it's not impossible. I think what is, what's happening in many schools that I see, and these are public, private, charter, is, you know, teachers are going to a training session on design thinking, and they go to a training session on social emotional learning, they go to a training session on personalized learning. Um, but then they have to go back to their classroom, and they have the burden of designing a new experience based on what they've learned. Um, and I know when I was a teacher, like I just had very limited time, um, and know-how to actually design those, those kinds of experiences, uh, much less work with technology in, uh, in innovative ways. Uh, so I don't think there's, there's a lot of debate about whether these things that we're talking about are good things. Uh, I think the fundamental question is how do we bring them to life in ways that are realistic uh, and don't basically fall on the backs of teachers to design. Have you had the chance to uh, work with any uh, whole school design or new school development? No, we've really, really focused very deeply on on middle school math. We haven't done any any whole school projects, and and I, I just think that's because it's the depth of the innovation we think at this point matters more than the breadth. Uh, at, at some point, it would be fun to uh, to have your team blue sky whole school design. Given what you've learned, uh, you've had quite a journey. Um, it kicked off in an interesting way by uh, by reconceptualizing how we could improve uh, roles and conditions for teachers. Well, it was certainly my experience as a teacher. You know, I I told my fifth graders that who I taught that I was going to come back seven years later for their high school graduation, uh, and I did. And, uh, you know, because I worked hard and I cared a lot, I thought they were all going to these, you know, wonderful colleges, going to be living these great lives. And when I went back seven years later and I tracked down about 60% of them, basically all the statistics played out. Some graduated, some didn't, some were in jail, some were on the street stealing drugs. Um, I wasn't sure I had the impact that I hoped to have, notwithstanding uh, what I put into it. Uh, and I know there are lots of teachers out there that feel the same way. Well, Joel, I'm I'm optimistic that now, uh, you know, compared to when you started your work, uh, there's a tremendous amount of private investment and philanthropic investment in the innovation agenda. And so you've, you've helped to create an important movement where uh, 10 years ago, there were a few dozen people thinking about this, and now there are a few million people uh, worldwide thinking about this and your work has made a big contribution to helping us all think differently and better about the kinds of conditions that we can create for kids and teachers. 
I, I appreciate your saying that, Tom. That that means a lot coming from you. You you track this stuff as closely as anyone. I still think we have a lot of work to do. Um, you're, it and sounds I, like you're still an R and D project, Joel. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and we would love to see hundreds more R and D projects uh, going down the same path. Well, we appreciate it. Thanks for being on the Getting Smart podcast. Great. Thanks for having me, Tom. Happy New Year. So, Tom, based on that conversation, what do you think is next for new classrooms? Well, it's important to remember that this was is really a beta platform for new classrooms, and it's based on coded algorithms. And what's next for them is to partner with an AI provider and have an algorithm that can really learn from their growing data set to make this platform even smarter. Awesome. And AI is definitely something that we are interested in 2017. For more on Ask About AI, head to gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Megan. And Tom. Signing off.